I know. It's a calculated risk. Right, right. Well, that's all right. Well, good morning again. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, well. Yeah, leave it to the Irish Catholics to figure out a way to celebrate uh, someone who's been sainted by the church uh, by getting until you're just falling down drunk. Can't wait till we see what we do when, Saint, when Mother Teresa is sainted. It'll be a party. <laughs> All right. Like I, told, I told Rich, I'm kind of full of myself today, so who knows what's going to come out. It's just one of them days. One of them days. All right, so let's pray. Father, I just uh, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for uh, how you've given it to me, and I pray that what, uh, what I speak is truly only that which you would have heard. And so anything that I might say that is not something that uh, is edifying and for your people, I just pray they immediately forget it. Um, and so, Lord, we just want this to be a true presentation of your gospel. So we give you thanks for that and ask it all now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so, our first slide here. We could do that. So, um, some time ago, the Institute for Jewish and Community Research surveyed 1,200 professors from a cross-section of colleges seeking their attitudes towards various religions. Now, the, the research, as you can imagine from who did it, was originally game, aimed at gauging anti-Semitism. Um, but interestingly enough, they discovered something else. The professors that were um, surveyed had positive feelings towards Jews and Catholics, but 53% said they possessed unfavorable feelings towards students who were evangelical Christians. Uh-oh. <laughs> In his article, Why Christians Feel Unwelcome on Campus, David French offers his own conclusion on the matter. For evangelicals, it came through loud and clear. The academic establishment has long dismissed stories about bias against Christians as mere anecdotes but now we have concrete evidence of sheer bigotry. Our colleges clearly have a religion problem and faithful students and professors are paying the price. The name of Jesus will not always be welcome among leaders and preserver, preservers of culture. And those of us who follow Jesus uh, are gonna have to prioritize our decision making and, and truly align carefully so that we are only seeking God's favor. Right? Because if we get in the habit of striving for acceptance and popularity in both our lives and in our ministry, um, we're going to miss the blessing of God's providence. Right? And so we really have to kind of turn a blind eye to that. And that's, that's what we're going to talk about. And we're going to see an example in Scripture today in, from the book of Acts sort of, of, what, of what's going on there and how they're dealing with it. Right? And then hopefully pull some life lessons out of that uh, that we can then um, follow or abide by or whatever. So we're going to look at uh, from Acts chapter 5. It's verses 12 through 20. That's not 22. It's 32. I think it's 12 through 32. So we'll have it up on the screen. You can follow along on, in your um, manual devices or your electronic devices. That would be a Bible for those of you that were wondering what a manual device was. It's called a Bible. All right, so here we go. I told you I was in a mood. So uh, verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done, done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now, this, now, chapter 5 as an entirety is broken up into two parts. The very first part is the uh, rather well-known and somewhat mysterious story of Ananias and Sapphira, right? This couple that sells some property, and they're going to donate it to, which is what all the Christians were doing. They were kind of taking money. 
that they sold, putting it in a common pot, uh, and then it was being doled out as people needed it. Well, Ananias and Sapphira sort of did that. Um, <laughs> they donated some of it, but said they donated all of it. And then God sort of said, nah, I'm not so happy about that, and so he struck them dead. So, which is kind of the mysterious part of the story. I not really, that's one of those that we'll have to look at on some other day, or, or maybe you could take a crack at that. So we're going to talk about that in a, little, a little later on. So that's really kind of what is in the first half of this. The second half of the story is really this ongoing interaction that's occurring between the apostles and the religious, religious authorities of that day. Okay, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, etc. So that's kind of where we're going with this. And what the opening paragraph of which this is a part is kind of showing is that what the disciples are, are being charged uh, guilty of is that there was this law that was supposed to be for um, no witnessing. You were not allowed to witness out in public. Okay, So that's what's happening, and that's why the authorities are kind of upset with them. All right, so let's move on. Verse 13 and 14. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. This reminded me, this was the very first exegetical work I ever did in seminary. Now, exeg exegetical or exegesis is a, is a seminary word. All it really means is you want to try and figure out what was the original author saying to the original audience, okay? So when you talk about exegesis, that's really all it means. You want to figure out what was the author trying to say to the people he was writing to, right? It's a fancy word, and that's, but that's really all it means. And what, the reason I selected this, and I had, my professor was Dr. Wafa Wanaka. <laughs> it took about three class sessions before I could say Wafa Wanaka. He was a great teacher, though. I really, really enjoyed him. Once I, could, once I got used to his, he was from Ghana, and so it took a while to get used to, what, to his accent. So it was one of those where he would say something, and then a couple of beats later, I would then figure out what he had just said. So that improved gradually over the semester. So, um, and, and what really intrigued me about this passage, and the reason I chose it, was, th was verse 13. None of the rest of them dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. I was like, what does that mean? What, what, what is, what's Luke trying to say here? Because remember, Luke wrote, the, wrote Acts. So what is Luke trying to communicate with this phrase? So there's actually, this is one of those cases where you can't really say with any certainty that it means this. So there's possible explanations, and, and you just sort of have to come to your own conclusion as to what you think that means. One explanation could be because of what we just talked about. Folks had heard about Ananias and Sapphira, right? And so they're like, I'm not so sure I want to hang out with those people. Um, you know, if it, it, it's kind of an all-in, but if you're only half in, you could not end up so well, right? So... You know, and again, one of the things that we have to do is we have to look at context, right? That's going to come up somewhere else. You really have to understand what's going on in the context of the story. And so since this immediately follows that, it's not illogical to draw the conclusion that it was that that's really causing this fear to occur among these other people. So that's one explanation. Um, Another possibility is something that I think is still somewhat prevalent today. And that is that they were afraid to join the Christians because they were kind of in awe of the powerful works that they were doing. I mean, people were getting healed. And people, they were seeing demons, maybe not seeing, but experiencing demons come out of people. All right, well, you know, we've talked about this. It's, that's weird, right? You know? It's weird to us. It's weird. Was weird to them. I'm sure. So um, that's you know, and, and we sort of see that today. You know, people will shy away from a church like ours that expresses an interest in being charismatic or spirit-filled because there's a fear of the unknown, right? They just they don't 
they don't like that for some reason. They just they don't understand it, probably. And so it, it's sort of it's a two-edged sword, right? Some people are very attracted to that. Some are, are more repelled by it. So that could be the case of what's happening here. And, um, and a third possibility, which is also very real, is the apostles were being persecuted during this time. And, you know, it wasn't that we're not that far after Jesus had died and resurrected and had gone off to heaven. And so all of that was still pretty fresh in everyone's minds. And as we're going to see, the authorities are constantly hauling various subsections of the apostles before a council or some other and throwing them in jail and various things. Well, that's kind of off-putting. <laughs> if you think, I'm not sure I want to hang out with those guys. They, they seem to be troublemakers. So you kind of have to look at the context and pick what you think is the, uh, the most obvious answer. Okay, but the interesting thing that we see sort of in the last part of that is that no matter what their reason for sort of holding this group at arm's length, they really respected them. Right? You know, it says, held them in high esteem. So there was something about their commitment to living the way they were living that even people that weren't so sure about wanting to be one of them could still say, wow, that's, that's impressive. That's really impressive that they would have that much strength and commitment to their faith. Okay. What is that? All right. Never mind. Uh, so verse 15. So that even they, this is a continuation really from 14. So let's back up. All right, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all healed. Okay? So instead of going to the colonnade, which is where they were having kind of their worship services, people are bringing the sick and just putting them in the street, hoping that when Peter walks by, his shadow will fall on them and that they'll somehow uh, get healed. Um, that seems kind of foreign to our experience, doesn't it? But is it really? I mean, I think today, especially, people are searching for some kind of a physical demonstration of God's presence in their life. Right? We may not, you know, drag someone out into the street when Billy Graham was alive and hope that Billy Graham's shadow would somehow heal them. But people are still looking or some kind of a touch from God, right? So this really isn't that unusual if you think about it. I mean, I've heard of people that will, you know, if they're in a desperate situation in their lives, and they somehow, and actually this happened to a friend of mine. Um, he was in a band, and it was just, it was, they were doing kind of typical band member stuff, and he was miserable in spite of the success, and... Uh, was in a hotel room late at night, turned on TV, happened upon some TV evangelist, and he got saved. And he, reached, had, he had to reach out and, and like touch the television. Right? Because we, we need that contact. There's something about us that we're wired to get that kind of contact. So I don't know that this is that odd. The other part of it is, is that there was a belief in that particular time that, uh, that a shadow actually was a representation of the person, okay? So if the, if the shadow touched you, it was really the same as if Peter had touched them himself. So that's what's going on. Um, it's superstitious, but it's right in line with everything that we know about this, this time and this culture. And the interesting thing is, and I don't know that I had ever really thought about this before, the one thing the scripture is silent on is whether the people were actually healed that this happened to. We don't know. It says they took them out there, but it doesn't actually say they got healed. So I think we, are, we're, we may jump the gun a little bit in, in 
quoting this and saying, well, people were healed by Peter's shadow. Well, it doesn't actually say that. Um, it just says that they brought them out in the streets so that his shadow... Now, it's very possible that God did that. I simply don't know, and the text is silent on it. And so, uh, whatever the case, what Luke does tell us is that in the very last couple of words, and they were all healed. Okay, so by whatever means God chose to do it, they were all healed. Okay, so now we kind of get into the confrontation part of this. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So um, now here we have entering the guys, the bad guys in the black hats. And I'm going to stop here because something happened last week that I didn't, I sort of realized and then I was, um, it was pointed out to me later that it was, that what I had sort of suspected was probably true. I used a phrase last week where I said that they had to get out of Dodge. Who here does not know what that means? Anybody? Okay. Well, it was, it's basically from a time of cowboy movies, right? Where you had to, the bad guys had to get out of Dodge, Dodge City. So it's sort of, it, that's what it means. Um, but it was brought to my attention that my age was showing a little bit. So... I apologize. Sort of the same thing with the guys in the black hats. The, the bad guys in cowboy movies always wore black hats. The good guys wore white hats. Okay, So that's, that's, the, that's the situation here. <laughs> so, this is the crowd that had actually showed up in Acts chapter 4. You know, the same group of religious leaders. And, you know, as they did then, they do the same thing again. They arrest them and put them in jail. Um, now, there are, um, in Acts, there are three different jail miracles that happen. Okay, this is the first one of those, where an angel shows up, and somehow m m the doors for the jail open up, and the prisoners, the chains fall off, and the prisoners just walk out. And so, uh, it's God's grace just intervening in this situation. Uh, and so what, do, what does this angel tell him to do? He says, go right back and do what you were doing. Yeah. Go right back and preach the word of life in the temple courts. And so that's what they did. So verse 21. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate and the people of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Verse 24. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So this is kind of expanding the explanation of what's happened here. Um, he reminds, Luke is sort of reminding us how miraculous this was, right? Guards are still there, doors are locked, and yet here they all are out back exactly where they were the day before, doing exactly what they were doing the day before, right? So it's kind of like, well, how did that happen? And so um, the captain of the temple guard, who at that, who in the hierarchy, he was second only to the high priest, okay? So high priest, president, temple, captain of the temple guard, vice president, if you want to think of it that way. So he chooses a slightly different approach this time he is uh, a little bit, I guess, probably awed by whatever has happened. And so he's kind of like, you know, guys, it would really be doing me a favor if you all would just kind of go back to the courts, just maybe come along with us. We'd really appreciate it. You know, there's not this heavy-handed, 
force them to go back in chains or anything like that. So uh, what I think is, is to be noted here is you can sort of see this in the increasing popularity of Christianity in this. Um, the captain is fearful for his life. They, they just want the, they kind of just want this problem to go away. And I think more than that, Luke is really showing us that God is in control of all of this, right? This is not, none of this is happening outside of his purview, okay? So they, they bring them back when we pick them up, pick this up with chapter 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, I mean, technically speaking, the Sanhedrin has a point. There was a no testifying law, and so these guys are breaking it. Um, and it's interesting that they're, that it's like they're, at this point now they're seeing that this teaching has now filled Jerusalem. That's the term they use. Maybe they're exaggerating a little bit. Um, but the other thing is that in the eyes of the Sanhedrin, this gospel that they're preaching is making them directly responsible for Jesus' death. Which shouldn't be a surprise because Peter told them, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you completely healed. Now, think back, if you're familiar with the scriptures, to not but a few weeks before, what did the religious leaders tell Pontius Pilate? Let his blood be on us and on our children. Okay, how quickly we forget. How quickly situations cause us to change our viewpoint, right? They were all willing to take this a couple of weeks ago, but now things have obviously changed, right? There's this uprising happening, and now they don't want to have anything to do with it. So they're trying to back away from this. And then the last couple of verses, starting at 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So here, once more, we sort of find the one exception to the Bible's rule um, against civil disobedience, and that's that we've got to do what God's told us to do, right? And this is not some new God. This is not some other God. This is the same God. This is the God of our fathers, right? So he's inclusive in what he's saying there. Now, we have to be kind of careful here because this statement by Peter has been used by Christians throughout the centuries. It's been used by martyrs making the ultimate sacrifice, but it's also been used by power-hungry popes who were you know, trying to influence secular rulers and to expand the reach of, uh, of the Vatican and the church in that sense. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a dangerous saying because it's subject to abuse. But, and so if we're going to say that, then we have got to be as clear about what we're saying as Peter was, you know, and, and understand inside what God's purposes really are. Um, and and the, the thing is, Peter's, Peter offers no defense for this. Right? He's just a witness, and then he offers salvation to Jesus' murderers. Right? The last verses are pure gospel. Repent and forgive and, and, and receive forgiveness of your sins. And he offers this to all of Israel. It's, it's, there is no anti-Semitism in this statement. 
it's just a, fl a frank explanation of what's happened of the historical events and this free offer of the gospel to anyone who believes. Okay, so that's sort of the basics of the text that we, we're going to look at today. So sort of our big idea would be um, that we, you, individually, are to speak the words of life, seeking God's favor only and not cultural approval. Right? Hard, easy to say, difficult to do, difficult to carry out, for sure. So, you know, what, what kind of happens if we're obedient and we do what God says? Just like, you know, we have Peter standing up there and said, look, you may have said this, but I've got to do this. Right? Now, his was more of a direct disobedience of a command that was given to him. In our case, it's probably less that than it is just an opposition to popular culture, right? To people that we think oppose us. So what kind of happens if we are obedient in speaking the words of life? Well, I think, first of all, we'll see that people will respond to us in a variety of ways. And we see this in, in the, the verses that we've been looking at. We see pretty much everything from acceptance and gratitude to jealousy, to antagonism, to pride, all of those emotions, all of those reactions are kind of all mixed up in all of this. And I guess the conclusion you come to is, well, not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Right? A presentation of the gospel is still likely to generate any one of those possible responses. Antagonism, gratitude, jealousy, fear, etc. However, I want to encourage you with some statistics that I recently came across. Now, the source of these statistics is Tom Rainer. I don't know if you know or aware of who Tom Rainer is. For a year, for about 13 years, Tom Rainer was the president of Lifeway, Lifeway Resources. Um, recently retired, I think last fall. Uh, he's, he's also written books on church growth, on leadership, on a whole variety of subjects. So, um, and he, he, over the years, has done a lot of surveying of things like this. And these, sur these uh, statistics are pretty remarkable. Um, and, I, you know, I, and I tend to believe them considering where they came from, right? So here's the first statistic. 82% of unchurched people are at least somewhat likely to attend church if they were invited. 82%. See, we, I think, get all tangled up in, oh, you know, what's going to, I'm going to, you know, they, they're going to reject me and and that's going to make me feel bad, or they're going to think less of me. We, we go through all of these kinds of emotions when the fact of the matter is four out of five people are likely to say yes. And that statistic is even a little bit deceiving because if you break the numbers down, about 50% will enthusiastically say yes. The other 32 are a little bit less enthusiastic, which sort of then brings you to this average of uh, somewhat likely, okay? 82% of people, if you ask them, would come. Now here's the sad flip side to that. While you have 82% of unchurched people who would come if you invited them, in the last year, only 2% of church attenders extended an invitation to someone. percent. That's terrible. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. It's terrible, right? And, you know, I don't really, I don't fully understand the reasons for that. There's a whole lot of, we could come up with a lot of excuses, I'm sure. But the fact of the matter is, 82% would say yes if we would just ask them. Think of what churches would look like if we, if that could actually just go up to 10%. If 10% of the people started asking, would invite someone to church, that could be an amazing turnaround. Here's the other th thing that I found fascinating. 70% of unchurched people have never 
been invited to church in their entire life? 70%. See, I don't... There's a debate on whether or not we're living in a post-Christian society. I mean, that's fairly convincing evidence that we are. If that, if that many people have never even been invited to come to a church, that's really staggering. But it's also good news, right? It's good news in the sense that um, it's wide open out there, <laughs> right? You, <laughs> you could just you know, throw something up in the air and watch it hit somebody, and you could probably go ask them, and, no, I've never been asked to go to church before. Yeah, sure, I'll come. I mean, it's that wide open, right? That if, if all we'll do is extend an invitation. Now, I'm not talking about you know, going up and, and, and trying to uh, lead them in the sinner's prayer and get them to accept Jesus. It's just, hey, you know, why don't you come to church with me? Our, we're, we're doing this series on XYZ, and I think you'd really like it, right? And I think all of this is significant because so many of us, we, we expect the rejection to come, and that's why we don't step out and issue the invitation. You know, we think they're going to say no. So we just go, well, they're just going to say no anyway, so I'm just not going to bother to ask. Well, the statistics do not bear that out. Four out of five will be at least somewhat likely to say yes. And so... So what do you do when the response is negative? So let's say you happen upon one of the 20% that says no. Well, the phrase that came to my mind was the phrase that Jesus told the disciples when he sent them out, and it was, shake the dust off your feet. Now, I looked, I wanted to be sure what that really was saying, so I did some research, and, and the, the, the concept of shaking the dust off your sandals is a Jewish tradition goes back centuries. And so what would happen is if a Jew entered a pagan area, say an area where there were Gentiles, when they left, they would literally shake the dust off their clothes and off their feet so they wouldn't be tainted by this unclean land. That was the thinking. It was a way of demonstrating extreme contempt for this particular area and the people that lived there. And they were determined not to have any more involvement with them, and so they would make sure that all, you know, every you know, bit of that area was gone. Okay? Now, you can imagine what the response was when Jesus is suggesting that this symbolic action be directed at the Jews. Because he's sending these disciples out to Jewish towns. Right? And he tells them, well, if they reject you, shake the dust off your sandals. That's an outrageous affront. At least that's how it would be heard to them. Now, is my point that if someone says no, <laughs> that um, that's the response we should have? No, not at all. Not at all. We're to love, right? That's the new covenant. We love everybody. My point in bringing it up is just simply that I think it's, it's a symbolic way to think about it, right? Don't take offense, you know, if somebody says no. Quite honestly, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. He's used to it. <laughs> He's pretty used to it, so I don't think it's going to bother him one way or the other. Um, all I mean is, don't linger with it, don't take it personally, you know, go on to the next town, which in this case is just the next person that you have an opportunity to share with. You know, don't dwell on that little bit of rejection. But the cool thing is, is when the response is positive. You know, a couple of weeks ago I made a statement that if you would invite someone and you would get them here, you have my word that they will hear the gospel message and will be offered an opportunity to come to faith. Okay. So that's the deal. Now think about this. 
If you ask that person to come and they accept that offer that day, that particular church service is going to be for you the best church service you've ever attended. I'm serious. I mean, you've heard probably hundreds of hours of preaching. You've been to who knows how many church services, some good, some not so good. But if you bring somebody here and they make that decision, that will be the best church service you've ever been in. And if I decide on that day to say, now everybody close your eyes, and if you've made that um, decision, would you raise your hand? If you brought someone, you have permission to peek. <laughs> if you brought someone to church that day, you can open your eye and see, okay, are they, what are they doing? You have permission to peek. Okay. So just understand, people are going to respond in a whole lot of different ways. And, you know, we, we, can't, we can't get too down when we're rejected. We don't want to get too far up when, when the offer is accepted. We just rejoice in whatever. Secondly, we need to understand that, that God's purpose needs to take priority. Now, we've talked about priority a bunch in the past. And I've given you, you know, some people say, well, I'm not sure what my priorities are. Well, let me tell you, there's an easy way to check. What do you think about? What's on your calendar? What's on your bank statement? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? And what do you think about? If you're not sure what your priorities are, that's the place to start. Because that's going to tell what, you, what you're really focused on. Okay. See, the thing about priorities is either you choose your priority or your priority chooses you. So you have a choice in this matter. And so the thing is, if God's purposes are going to become a priority in your life, then you need to consciously and intentionally choose for that to be the case. You can't just say, all right, God, you know, use me today, you know, which is not a bad thing to say, but then you have to put some, you know, you can't then go uh, and sit on the couch all day. Unless, of course, you're watching Downton Abbey. I, that's, that's, you get a pass for that. A <laughs> little bit of an inside joke. Sorry, I'm not going to share any more than that. Um, so if, if God's purpose is going to become a priority, you've got to look for a way to choose it. Yeah. All right? So ha, let me give you some ideas on how you can choose to make God's priority your priority. Okay? So, if you're having a conversation with someone and someone says that, that something is not going well, invite them to church. That's a big open door. Invite them to church. If you're talking to somebody and they make a comment that something has happened that they're just really not prepared for, invite them to church. Again, Big open door. If you're in a conversation and somebody kind of seems to go out of their way to say that they don't attend church, invite them to church. <laughs> they're, they're trying to tell you something. Okay? And then clearly, if somebody is new in a particular area, you want to invite them to church. Right? That's an easy one. Someone, you know, new neighbors, somebody new in the apartment building you're in, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, invite them to church. So we've got to look for ways that we can really make God's priority our priority. Because it isn't just going to happen. Right? We can't just pray and sit. We've got to pray and then act. Right? All right. So last point. God empowers us for works of ministry. And we see that uh, in the scripture. See, the definition of empower is to give power to. So this is saying that God has given power to us for works of ministry. And the thing that I want to make sure we avoid here is let's not water this down 
and once again ignore the context of the verses that we've just looked at, right? This is not limited to the power to go and tell someone about Jesus, okay? See, I think the mainline churches would sort of would land there in many cases, that this power we're talking about is really nothing more than, you know, boldness perhaps. But that's, and that's not, again, it's not bad, it's good. But it's not 100% right either. Because this is the word, we've talked about this numerous times. The root of this word power is dunamis. Dynamite is what we get from the word dunamis. That's what the kind of power we're talking about. That to me does not sound like go and just tell someone to come to church or invite them uh, you know, to accept Jesus. We've been given power, okay? If you read verse 16 again, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. It's power, that kind of God's power, that's what propelled the spread of the gospel. It's that kind of power that will fuel the growth of this church. Now this is where I'm going to do my um, shameless plug. Starting on uh, April the 14th, um, my friend Rich, Tichter, is going to start teaching an adult Sunday school class. It's going to be held at 9 o'clock. It'll be back in that back classroom, one, room 104, for about an hour. And he's going to start by um, going through the book of Acts. So if you have an interest in that, I would encourage you to kind of put that down on your calendar. We'll certainly remind you. But uh, April the 14th, 9 a.m., Rich is going to start teaching a class on Acts. Okay? So, and, and that's important because the book of Acts is sort of like the instruction manual for, for church growth. I mean, there's lots of books out there right now. There's lots of podcasts. I, I mean, I read the books, I listen to the podcasts, I go to the conferences. But it's right there in Scripture, too. Right? It's the power of God which leads you to be able to tell someone. Because if you're dealing with someone who is unchurched, not familiar with God, and, and they're hurting, and you pray for them, and whatever is hurting stops hurting. They've got to figure out what they're going to do with that. And once again, you've created an open door that you can then invite them to know the God behind that power. That's what we see happening over and over again in Acts. There was power, a demonstration of power, followed by a presentation of the gospel, followed by salvation. And so these works of power are kind of what opened the door in many cases. And so we've, you know, we, we put a fair amount of emphasis on that. That's why we have the School of Kingdom Ministry every year, or at least every year that we have people that are willing to take it, because it's important to understand that that kind of power is available to everybody, Amen. right? There's no qualifications for this school. You don't have to take an entrance exam. You just say, hey, you know, I'd like to take that. Okay, fine. Come on. So understand that you are empowered um, to be able to do these things. So... What are some things that you can do this week to kind of uh, engage with this information? Well, first of all, um, all right, that's not what I thought it was going to say. Anyway, we'll go with that. Um, yeah, I think that's from last week. I think I may have missed it. All right, let me just, I'll read them to you. Um, first of all, I think, question yourself. Are you being bold in obedience to the gospel imperative to be a witness to Jesus? 
sit with that question for a while and see what the answer comes up. And then, probably a harder question to ask is, when is the last time that you've been bold enough to share your faith with someone else? I won't ask for a show of hands, because <laughs> I know it's, it's hard. The other, another question might be, who has God brought to you and surrounded you with so that you might be in a position to proclaim or demonstrate the gospel to somebody? Who's a few people that you could maybe put down that you could stretch yourself in a little bit and, and to take that step with them? And then I would suggest this, pray for that opportunity. I can remember one time, this is a long time ago, uh, we were in a group and a guy was talking about, um, he was a very, very stout, mature believer, but his parents were not. And I mean, he was probably in his 40s at this point. And um, he was talking about how difficult it could be, you know, to talk to your parents about something like that. It's not like you can, you know, get out your calendar and like, okay, 10 a.m., talk to dad about Jesus. It doesn't work that way. Or if you're trying to make it work that way, it's probably not being, not, not real effective. So I would say this, start to pray. Pray for that person. And more importantly, pray for the opportunity to share. Right? Rely, trust that God is going to do that that God will provide that window, that opening that we were talking about earlier, whether it's through something they say or a situation, but just pray that you have that opportunity to share and then be bold enough to step into it and actually ask the question. So just kind of think about those things, you know, as, as you go through this week. And, and as I said, look for opportunities. And so to conclude, I, I just I'll say this. Every day, FedEx sends over 4 million packages to its customers. Um, believe it or not, their delivery routes cover every U.S. street, every U.S. street, and service more than 220 other countries. I w it always cracks me up because I don't know if you know much about the, the uh, beginning of FedEx, but the founder of FedEx wrote uh, um, an MBA paper on this, and I think he got a C on it. <laughs> he didn't get an A, I remember that much. I think it was like a B minus or a C, and the professor wrote something like that, impossible, <laughs> or whatever. So guess who laughed last? In order to sell, to send well, FedEx has over 170,000 employees, 675 aircraft, 50,000 ground transportation vehicles, and 1,800 office locations. It's a bit mysterious, but somehow FedEx has figured out a way for customers to ship packages with a one-day turnaround. And so if FedEx knows anything, they know how to send well. Yeah. Now, the church may not be in the package delivery business, but they are in the people delivery business. At least that's what Jesus wanted the church to be about. Problem is that, that sending people is not, has not always been the church's top priority. And if we're honest, the church really hasn't done a good job of, of sending out laborers into the harvest, as Jesus told us we should do. And if we go back to FedEx, I think part of this, the, their success is they have a very unique way of looking at the world. They operate with a very deep conviction that everyone in the world should have the ability to send and receive packages. Now that may seem sort of, you know, odd in some cases when you think about it, but that's what drives them. That's why they have been as successful as they had as they have been. Now, you know, I don't know that God's all that concerned about package delivery. But he's, Scripture makes it pretty clear that God is interested in people receiving the message of salvation. 
and in, in coming to the knowledge of the truth. And so I think God operates with this deep conviction that all of us should have the ability to send and receive eternal hope. And so God's distribution plan is not, I don't know, maybe not as complex as FedEx's with all of its planes and trucks and offices and people. It's just people. And so I think we need as a church to take some notes um, from FedEx and figure out how we can learn to deliver well. Right? How to make people important, how to put God's priority in front of our own. So, let's pray. Father, I just I thank you for this time. Thank you for your words in, in Luke's message in Acts about putting your purposes above our own. Father, I, I would ask that all of us would recommit to putting your purposes first that we would start to consciously and intentionally look for opportunities to share. Help us to rejoice in our successes and shake off our failures. Which really aren't failures, they're just rejections of you. So help us to be faithful, Lord. And I pray right now that if there is anyone sitting in this room that has never had the opportunity to truly accept Jesus as their Savior, that they would simply say this prayer with me. Oh God, I am a sinner, and I'm sorry for my sins. Right now, I'm willing to turn from my sins. I believe Jesus Christ is your son, and I believe that he died for my sins and that you raised him to eternal life. And in this moment and forevermore, I receive Jesus as my Savior. I receive him as the Lord of my life or the leader of my life, and I want to become his follower. And so from this moment on, I want to follow him in the fellowship of the church. And so I pray that you would guide my life and help me to do your will in all things. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.